It's all hotting up in the Conservative leadership race. So far, we've got 11 candidates, including two former health secretaries and a trio of chancellors, plus enough transphobia to keep even the comment pages of the Times happy. So where do we stand in the competition to become our next prime minister by impressing a handful of golf club bores? With me to discuss all the weekend's developments is Michael Walker. Michael, thank you so much for letting me take over your seat again. You can have it for as long as you like, Ash. I, I love being a, a co-host. So much freedom. I can talk about whatever I want. Beautiful. Well, I've locked the door. You're never getting this job back. Sajid Javid has launched his leadership campaign with a press conference on the hottest day of the year so far and a little sweaty. He criticized Johnson's leadership and announced his own economic plans. Look at the polls. Look at the by-election results. Look at what people are telling their MPs. While families are limiting their weekly shop, politicians are getting caught up in arguments over who knew the, the latest sleaze allegations and when. And this isn't just bad for the country. It's catastrophic for all the Conservatives. Because when we lose our integrity, we lose the trust of the British people. We need a leader who makes credible promises, brings people together, and makes tough decisions in the national interest. If we can't grow our economy, we can't get a hearing on any other issue. It really is as simple as that. Improving our productivity is the most important issue of our times. We cannot improve living standards. We cannot fund our public services. And we cannot provide security without it. And there is no social mobility, no social justice without productivity growth. It just can't happen. It's as simple as that. I've always believed in free enterprise and low taxes and sensible regulation as the necessary conditions for growth and leveling up right across the country. But you know, some say that you can't have tax cuts until you have growth. But I say no. It's the other way around. We need tax cuts to kickstart growth. Later, Javid was asked an interesting question. Why did he stay on if he didn't trust the Prime Minister and disagreed with his economic policy? If you think back to the statement I made in Parliament, which just five days ago, so wow, that's gone fast. It's, uh, yeah, I was very clear about the reasons that I stayed for as long as I did. And I took my job as Health and Social Care Secretary incredibly seriously. I think a lot of people were depending on me. And I did think about leaving earlier than I did. But every time I just, I convinced myself that to give the benefit of the doubt. And perhaps I did it for too long. Perhaps I should have left earlier, but I didn't see anyone else leave any earlier than me. So you stuck it out for years, but you also want credit for being the first to go when literally everyone could see it had fallen apart. Don't think that is the win you think it is, Sajid. What's interesting, however, is that Javid, who has the support of a clutch of junior ministers and Rishi Sunak, will essentially be competing for the same pool of votes. It's the battle of the ex-chancellors, and Javid has also promised to scrap Sunak's planned increase in corporation tax and bring it down to 15%. Michael, over the weekend, we had some big beasts announcing their candidacy. How do you think that Javid is going to fare up against them? 
Um, not very well, I'd imagine. I mean, he's he's just a worse version of Rishi Sunak, isn't he? I feel like they will be competing for, for similar people, as you said. I mean, I think what is remarkable, though, about the launch of his campaign, very similar to the launch of Jeremy Hunt's campaign, they're both going to reduce corporation tax to 15% if they win. And both of them justifying it by saying, what we really need is growth and how you get growth is tax cuts. It's just completely crazy. Like, if you look at the charts of how the British economy has fared compared to many of our other peers or compared to the G7, we have had an appalling decade. And in this decade, what have we done? We've cut corporation tax, right? It's the lowest in the G7. And businesses aren't rushing to set up here. And they're not rushing to set up here because the issue with sort of high value businesses, the kind that you, you want to set up in your country, isn't just about low corporation taxes. They also want an environment where there is a reason to invest because you've got a smart, talented workforce. It's about investing in education. It's not about cutting corporation tax. No one's really asking for this. I mean, it's also the case, of course, that if your economic policy is based on just cutting corporation tax to bring over companies from other countries, it's what Tom Harwood was arguing today on, on Twitter, then essentially what you're doing is you're just poaching. You're not, you're not adding anything to the, the global output of, of goods and utility. All you're doing is stealing companies from other countries by saying, oh, you can give even less back to society if you come over here. And I think it just shows the paucity of the imagination of these people that after 12 years of government rule, where, yes, tax rates at the moment are, are fairly high because of the way they're spread out and also because you've got in, in inflation, which brings people into different tax bands. But corporation tax, the one that they seem most focused on, is incredibly low. It, it's lower than in all of our peers, as I've said. And even if Rishi Sunak's plan to bring it up to 25% goes ahead, it would still be the lowest in the G7. And still, you've got all of these politicians, one after the other, saying, the way we're going to deal with this cost of living crisis is we're going to cut taxes on businesses. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. None at all. You're right about us having lower corporation tax than our peers. We even have lower corporation tax than the state of California. And no one would think, hmm, California, that's a low innovation environment. So let's update you on the announcements of the weekend. As I said, we had some big beasts enter the Tory leadership race and we had a couple drop out. Firstly, the Brexit heartman and net zero naysayer Steve Baker said he will not be running and instead he endorsed Attorney General Suella Braverman and membership favourite Ben Wallace ruled himself out of contention. On Saturday, the Defence Secretary tweeted, After careful consideration and discussing with colleagues and family, I have taken the decision not to enter the contest for leadership of the Conservative Party. I am very grateful to all my parliamentary colleagues and wider members who have pledged support. It has not been an easy choice to make, but my focus is on my current job and keeping this great country safe. I wish the very best of luck to all candidates and hope we swiftly return to focusing on the issues that we are all elected to address. Last week, we discussed Suella Braverman and Rishi Sunak who launched their campaigns Joining them this weekend were some other cabinet big hitters who officially entered the fray. Foreign Secretary Liz Truss launched her leadership bid with a Twitter video and an article in, where else, The Telegraph. Liz Truss promised a policy platform built around low taxes and taking on Vladimir Putin. She's also secured the support of Therese Coffey and Dehenna Davidson. Her deregulate everything economic ideology also makes her particularly popular with the Tory party membership. For her campaign slogan, she's chosen the groan-inducing trusted to deliver. Did you get it? Trust, trusted. And Henry Zefferman from The Times reported that a member of the public was so enthused that they mass-mailed this 
to hundreds of Conservative MPs and peers. If you want to keep your job, make sure you support your future Prime Minister Liz Truss. She is backed by the average man. We need to be settled and working towards a bright future with fair taxes and good conduct. People in the street think MPs are a joke. Please prove us wrong. Stop arguing over silly things and sort our great country out. Vote for Liz Truss. She's the only one who can sort the country out. Thank you from Average Man. Equalities Minister Kemi Badenoch announced her candidacy as well. Unsurprisingly, she went big on the war against wokeness, writing this for The Times. Meanwhile, our country is falsely criticised as oppressive to minorities and immoral because it enforces its own borders. We cannot maintain a cohesive nation-state with the zero-sum identity politics we see today, exemplified by coercive control, the imposition of views, the shutting down of debate, the end of due process. Identity politics is not about tolerance or individual rights, but the very opposite of our crucial and enduring British values. And if we are to see the change we need in this country, we need an intellectual framework which recognises that in politics, there is no division between the cultural or economic sphere. It is no surprise the fiercest proclaimers of social justice usually believe in the power of government over the people, in the power of the bureaucrat over the individual, and have a distrust of people making their own decisions in the economic sphere just as much as the social. Better than most, Badenoch demonstrates the contradiction of anti-wokeness. Freedom of speech is king, except when people criticise racist policy or conservative economic policy. You might think that going into a cost-of-living crisis harping on about the debates on uni campuses is a bit lightweight, but Kemi Badenoch has secured the backing of Michael Gove. It'll be interesting to see how many others from the Vote Leave campaign consolidate around her. Next up, we talked a lot about Jeremy Hunt, the former health secretary, last week. And the only things to add are that he's managed to secure significant support from the headbanging Brexiteer wing of the party and has promised to make Esther McVeigh his deputy prime minister. Moving swiftly on, spare a thought for Remen Chishti, who announced his leadership bid to a chorus of who's that? He's currently a junior minister in the foreign office and doesn't have any backers so far, but, you know, good on him for trying. First time for everything. Next up. Penny Morden, and we're going to have a good look at her leadership video later in the show. But the thing to know right now is that the Minister for Trade Policy is going hell for leather in trying to shake off her socially liberal reputation. This week, she fired off a lengthy thread about her record on taking on trans orthodoxy, declaring herself a biological woman and insisting she knows what a woman is. As others have said, that sounds like an amazing Isaac Hayes song. Look, It's pretty gross that trans people being able to live in dignity has turned into a cynical means for ambitious politicians to bolster their right-wing credentials, but there we are. Penny Mordaunt has been pipped as something of a dark horse and one to watch. Next up is Michael Green. I mean, Grant Shapps. He's the transport secretary whose leadership bid is notable for how little he has to say for himself. He plans, he communicates, he campaigns, he delivers. I mean, that is the absolute bare minimum for a politician. It's like he just copy and pasted the job description for an MP and went, yeah, that'll do. 
Despite having literally nothing to say, he's managed to get six MPs to support him, including George Eustace. And last but not least, we have millionaire and owner of Warm Horses, Nadim Zahawi. We're going to be talking about him as an individual later in the show, but for now, all you need to know is that he's promising tax cuts, which would be paid for by cutting 20% from every government department. It might go down well amongst MPs, but you try telling the public that you're going to cut a fifth of the NHS's budget after a pandemic. Michael, the two big pitches to the Tory faithful, as you so articulately said last week, it's just transphobia and tax cuts. So do you expect that they're going to pivot to a different message when it comes to a general election? Well, I think they would have to. So the, the polling on this is, is very clear, especially when it comes to the trans issues. There's a great poll from Maureen Common. I'm just going to have a look at it now. So they asked for people, the most important issue facing the country today, 64% said the cost of living. And you've got supporting the NHS, the war in Ukraine, climate change, climate change on 26%, by the way, pretty high. The debate about transgender people, 2%. So 2% include that as one of their most important issues facing the country today. And it is taking up about 50% of the time when it comes to this conservative leadership election. Completely bizarre. I mean, also on tax cuts, there was a, uh, a great poll um, I retweeted today, which was showing that I think it's sort of single digits the amount of people who would prefer to cut the funding for services in order to cut taxes. 50% of people saying precise opposite of thing. So what they're talking about in this leadership election is so, so abstracted from what people actually want that there is no way these people can go into a general election making the kind of arguments they are making here. You heard Nadim Zahawi, I think it was, suggesting that every department could be asked to cut 20% from its budget. You've got waiting lists for cancer treatment, which is the, the longest they've ever been. And this guy is suggesting we're going to cut funding for the NHS by 20%. It's, it's completely bizarre. But it, it does scare me because we were, I think, into a mode of thinking where we thought that austerity, you know, it wasn't over in the sense that the impacts of it were still being felt. Benefits are still incredibly low. The cuts have not been reversed. But it did feel like the cuts had stopped. There weren't new ones so much. Obviously, the £20 universal credit, but that was after a £20 uplift. Of course, I think it should stay, but it's slightly different to, to the longer-term austerity narrative. We thought that was kind of over. It looks pretty scary. It looks like we're going to have, you know, austerity on top of austerity if any of these candidates get their way, which is to yeah, massively cut taxes and then presumably to cut services. I mean, uh, Liz Truss is saying something a little bit interesting, which she is saying, actually, we don't have to worry too much about cutting the debt. Rishi Sunak has said he wants the debt to start falling by 2024. Liz Truss is saying, actually, it doesn't really matter. And she's just absolutely right. The problem is she wants to just implement tax cuts for, for wealthy people, essentially, instead of investing that in public services. And by the way, investing that in the kind of infrastructure and, and educational um, advancements that would actually attract growth, which is what has been absent from this country for a decade. And what all the conservative politicians are talking about, saying our plan is to, to bring growth to Britain, but all they can argue when it comes to bringing that about is, is tax cuts when we've already got very low corporation tax in this country compared to everyone else's completely bizarre, completely out of touch with what the public are calling for. So yeah, they will have to change their message when it comes to a general election. How easy that's going to be is, is, I suppose, something we can potentially discuss. Obviously, Keir Starmer promised something very, very different to the membership to what he did to the public. That has, in differing degrees, in terms of differing, it depends on who you ask, whether or not that matters. But it could be the case that these Tory candidates have, have a similar dilemma to confront at some point down the line. 
I mean, 2% of people saying that the transgender issue is the most important thing facing this country. I think that's quite high, Michael, because I didn't know that 2% of the nation wrote for The Observer. Just to continue this line of thought for a second, the whole, do I know what a woman is thing, that's a line that's cribbed straight from transphobic Twitter users who, as you know, like to reply to anyone who's even like vaguely nice about trans people going, well, what's the woman? And before, Mordaunt used to be known as someone who's quite good on LGBT issues. So what happened? Do you have an explanation for that? I suppose she stood to be Tory leader is what happened. So, <laughs> you know, w- w- we might think of that as something which makes her a more reasonable Tory. Obviously, that makes her, she perceives that it makes her less attractive to the Tory party membership. So she has sort of got ahead of the debate and said, people are saying I'm too woke. Actually, what did she say? I think a woman is a adult human female or something along those lines. So sort of a, a definition which excludes trans women. And that's her um, getting ahead of the debate. So yeah, what happened is she wanted to be Conservative Party leader. I, I imagine she hasn't changed her mind on these issues because I, I think she was a qualities minister, wasn't she? And then at that period of time, she was a bit of an ally in favour of reform of the Gender Recognition Act. But yeah, no, she, she's done a full about turn because she wants to be elected by Conservative MPs and then Conservative members. Right now, we're running a fundraiser because we want to expand this show and we want Navarra Media to grow. And we are so close to hitting our target of having 10,000 of you supporting us financially. So let's get an update on how we're doing on that front. Over 9,700 of you are now backing us, which is amazing. Thank you so much if you are one of those people. We really appreciate it. And if you want to become a Navara Media supporter, then head to navaramedia.com slash support. Nadim Zahawi has entered the Tory leadership race, going hard on tax cuts and reducing public spending. It wasn't long, though, before our newest chancellor came a cropper when his own finances came under scrutiny. Only a day after launching his bid, The Independent reported... Inland revenue experts are investigating the tax affairs of new Chancellor and Tory leadership hopeful Nadim Zahawi, the Independent can reveal. HMRC became involved after a secret inquiry was initially launched into Mr Zahawi's finances by the National Crime Agency in 2020. The Independent has also established that officers from the Serious Fraud Office investigated the Chancellor's financial affairs. The probe was then passed to HMLC, which falls under the control of the Treasury, the department that Mr. Zahawi now runs. A senior Whitehall source confirmed that the tax investigation is currently unresolved. So, what could this investigation be about? In his first TV appearance since putting his name on the ballot for the top job, Skies K. Burley ran through Zahawi's financial affairs. Is it true that your family benefits from an offshore trust? My family does not benefit from an offshore, I don't benefit from an offshore trust, nor does my wife. Um, We don't benefit at all from that. Um, My mother and father live abroad. Um, uh, That's their business. They're not, they don't live in the United Kingdom. Have you ever had non-DOM status? I've never had non-DOM status. Have you ever used an offshore company to avoid tax? Never used an offshore company. Has your family? My family, my wife has never been non-DOM. She's never used offshore status or a company to avoid tax. Have you told us everything about your business affairs that could potentially impact on your future ability to be prime minister? Yes, I have. Have you ever used offshore companies or services firms based in tax havens for the purchase of property or properties in the UK? No, I have. 
Have you fully declared all of your properties in the MP's register of interests? Yes, we have. Did you pay the requisite taxes, including stamp duty, when purchasing properties? Yes. Uh, you or your company uh, once held £20 million of Yugo shares in a Gibraltar-based company. Uh, what was the reason for using offshore financial structures like this, if not for the purpose of avoiding tax? I was not a beneficiary of um, uh, the uh, Balshaw um, investment that hold, held those uh, shares. Um, and Who was? My family. It's a, it's a part of public record. Um, uh, my, my father. But, but why would you do that if it wasn't for the purpose of avoiding tax? Because he's, he lives abroad. He doesn't live in the United Kingdom. Okay, two final questions, if I may. Just to clarify, 110%, obviously you're Chancellor, so you know you can't be 110%, but just work with me. Um, there is no way that any funds are being funneled into your parents' accounts or whatever, so to keep your hands clean. Uh, uh, absolutely. Just a couple of things to note there. Every time Burley asks Zahawi about whether his family benefits from offshore trusts, he's careful to answer only about himself and his wife. And when he's pressed on whether his wider family benefit from such trusts, he stresses that they live overseas. And they do live overseas. According to filings with Companies House, his father, Harith Nadim al-Zahawi, lives in Lebanon, though his correspondence address is a lawyer's office in the tax haven of Gibraltar where there is no capital gains tax and no inheritance tax. Before entering politics, Nadim Zahawi made a fortune by co-founding polling company YouGov in 2000. He resigned as its CEO in 2010 when he was elected to parliament. But did that mean he had no more involvement with it? Well, a major shareholder in YouGov is a company called Balshaw Investments, registered in the tax haven of Gibraltar exactly where his dad likes to receive his letters. This excerpt from YouGov's 2006 annual report shows that Balshaw owned nearly 20% of the company. But what exactly is Balshaw Investments? Later in the report, we are told it is a company in which the family of Nadim Sahawi, co-CEO, is interested. Let's now jump ahead to 2017, the year when Jeremy Corbyn had re revitalised Labour's chances at the ballot box. Zahawi was a member of Theresa May's number 10 policy unit. And this is an excerpt from YouGov's 2017 annual report. And there's Balshaw again with around 8% of the business. According to a 2017 report by The Guardian, that 8% was pretty valuable. Balshaw Investments hold shares worth over £20 million in YouGov, the polling firm co-founded by Zahawi in 2000. YouGov company documents have referred to Balshaw as the family trust of Nadim Zahawi's family. And here's where it gets really interesting. On the 31st of May, YouGov published a shocking poll. It used a new method which projected who would win seats based on the demographics of the people who lived there and how people in those demographics were responding to questions from pollsters. The poll was big news. The Times splashed it on their front page alongside a story about Corbyn and anti-Semitism. It came as a shock to the commentariat. These kinds of poll results weren't supposed to happen. Labour under Corbyn was meant to be utterly hopeless and certainly not on the verge of forming a government. As a result, YouGov received pushback from powerful people after its publication of the poll. And this is an excerpt from Tim Shipman's 2017 book, Fallout, 
about what happened after that poll was published. Nadim Zahawi phoned Stefan Shakespeare, YouGov's chief executive, and said they'll be queuing up to shut you down if you're wrong on this. You've just moved the currency by one and a half percent. I'm going to spare you the agony. I'm going to call for your resignation when you're wrong. That's right. Nadim Zahawi, a sitting MP, called up his YouGov co-founder and threatened him. Zahawi has since denied this, tweeting, This was clearly a joke between two good friends who had previously been business partners for several years. Stefan continues to be one of my closest friends and at no point since leaving YouGov in 2010 have I had any influence on the company. Suggesting otherwise is untrue. I'm sure this joke, coming from a person whose family appears to own a large chunk of the company, was so funny. And following the 2017 election, Zahawi was promoted to his first ministerial job. But let's get back to the finances. Balshaw is now owned outright by a trust management company, also based in Gibraltar, called T&T Nominees. But according to a 2017 Guardian report, TNT Nominees also holds the shares of a second company called Berkford Investments. In 2011, Berkford Investments loaned Zahawi money so that the MP and his wife could buy a livery yard in Warwickshire. So Zahawi got a loan from a mysterious offshore company to help him buy stables in Warwickshire which is linked to the other mysterious offshore company that owns a huge chunk of the firm he co-founded and which is connected to his parents. So how much did Berkford lend? We don't know. But we do know that the estate and the stables that Zahawi bought cost £875,000 in 2011. And we also know that Zahawi got in a spot of bother about those stables. Here's Zahawi with Kay Burley again. We've talked about this before, but you did um, claim for heating the stables where the horses were. Um, You did pay it back. Um, You said it was a mistake. But is that really the point? It was a mistake because we bought, my wife and I, a a cottage uh, with a riding school. Uh, There was an electricity meter in the riding school. There was an electricity meter in in the cottage. Um, I was... um, uh, uh, Told by the, the the then chief whip that you, know, you should claim for your uh, uh, you're allowed to for your basic running costs. Um, it's the right thing to do, even if you don't think um, uh, you need it. Um, I put in the claim, genuine mistake, not realizing that actually, although there was two meters, um, it was coming in on a single bill. Um, when it became public, um, there was um, a, a, a an investigation, full investigation into this. Uh, by the parliamentary authorities, they could see it was a genuine mistake. Um, and they agreed with me that it was a complete error, mistake. Um, and of course, I apologized and repaid it. So this is someone so rich that he can't tell the difference between the electricity bill for a cottage and the electricity bill for a full-on riding school combined with a cottage. Not only does Zahawi have connections to Gibraltar-based funds, connections, by the way, that he still hasn't clarified, but he also made a fortune from various side hustles while a sitting MP. Between 2015 and 2018, he was chief strategy officer for Keystone Petroleum, a part-time job that netted him a reported £1.3 million over three years. At the time, Zahawi was co-chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on Kurdistan. 
To absolutely no one's surprise, it turned out Keystone Petroleum has an oil field in Kurdistan. Zahawi also owns multiple lettings and commercial properties across London. The Mirror reported last year, Nadim Zahawi and their companies have built a £100 million property portfolio. More than half of it, which includes a country pile with stables, a £20 million townhouse, a string of high street properties and an industrial estate were bought while Mr. Zahawi has served as a government minister. Seven properties bought for more than £10 million are mortgage-free, while two more were part-funded by a £10 million worth of loans from Mr. Zahawi's wife, Lana. So Zahawi is very, very rich indeed, and the rich don't generally like people fishing around in their tax affairs. But Zahawi made an interesting pledge when talking to Kay Burley. I'm going to make a commitment today that if I am prime minister, I think the right thing to do is to publish my accounts annually. That's the right thing to do, uh, because I think we need to take this issue in many ways off, off the off the table. Um, I will publish my accounts annually. That's the right thing Backdated. Uh, to do. I will look at you know, what, what the options are in terms of backdating or just publishing annually. I think it's right to do it. What about your tax returns? I will, that's, that's what I'm talking yeah. about. My tax return, I'll publish annually. Okay. Over the last decade? Well, I, if I'm Prime Minister, I will, I will, I will publish them um, going forward. I don't think being retrospective is right. You know, I was in business before, I came out of that. Of course, I'm now in politics. Okay, first of all, if people were avoiding tax when they were in the private sector, maybe they shouldn't be allowed anywhere near government. But secondly, you've been in politics for 12 years, mate. So let's see what you've been up to for the last decade. Michael, we've obviously got to be careful about what we say on this show because Zahawi is minted and can afford better lawyers than either one of us. But this all sounds pretty fishy to me. So why hasn't this hurt his promotion prospects so far? I suppose because you know, the media don't care that much about it and the Tory party definitely don't care about it. And they have been, you know, that's who he relies on as it stands. I mean, that is the most pathetic pledge I've ever heard in my life. After I become prime minister, I am going to publish my tax returns. Now, a, a prime minister, I just looked it up, they get 161 grand a year. They also have their flat paid for. As we learned from Boris Johnson, they get that 30 grand allowance to do up the flat. Obviously, it wasn't enough for Boris Johnson. I'm not sure how expensive Nadim Zahawi's tastes are. But he's saying, oh, when I've got this 161 grand job, when I'm the most powerful person in the country, I will deign to publish my tax returns while I'm in that job. You shouldn't be making any other money while you're in that job. If you're the prime minister and you can't live off 161 grand a year when your rent is already paid by the taxpayer because you live in number 10 Downing Street, what are you doing? It's like you're saying, you know, Your Honour, um, I, I can't tell you whether or not I, I, I stole stuff before I was arrested. But since then, I haven't, I can confirm I haven't stolen a thing. Uh, obviously, I'm not, I'm not saying Nadim Zahawi has stolen anything. I'm just saying it's completely meaningless because what we care about when we're saying, can you publish your tax returns? Are you an honourable person? Now, you can't say, well, from now on, I'm going to be trustworthy. We want to know about the past. We want to know about your character. We want to know what you were doing when you're in the private sector. I mean, also with this Nadim Zahawi story, I mean, a, a lot of the the conversation about this gets quite complex because it, what was dodgy, what wasn't dodgy, what was above board, what was illegal, what was legal. Now, you know, as you've said, he's got better lawyers than us. I've got no idea if Nadim Zahawi's ever done anything illegal. I'm not trying to Im impute that at all. But what I look at here is this is someone who's got £100 million worth of property. Now, if you think about the challenges facing this country and, and, and what need to be the priorities of any 
prime minister, what needs to be the priorities of, of whoever forms the government. It is shifting our economy away from one where the only thing that increases in value is houses. Our wages stay the same. The houses get more expensive. We need to shift away from an economy that values ownership to an economy that values work. And yet, this guy who wants to be prime minister has a hundred million pounds in precisely that area of the economy which we need to move away from. Now, that suggests to me this is not going to be the guy to solve the country's problems. I mean, also when it comes to talking about character, I mean, you know, this this is potentially such an obvious point that people don't bring it up or it's it's controversial on 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 certain platforms. But if you've got a hundred million pounds worth of property, I judge you. I don't think good people do that. Like, how is your sort of demand for sort of material objects not satiated after like 10 million pounds? Like, why do you need a hundred million pounds worth of property? I think there is something morally corrupt about that, even if not legally corrupt. And these people should be nowhere near power. It feels like the feudal times when you've got people who own this much land, this much property. They are then the ones who are making the rules and governing over us. It's just, it's not right. I mean, obviously, Tony Blair, I, I don't know exactly how much he's got, but there are Labour politicians who've done this as well. And, I, and, and yes, I say, whether or not you're breaking the law, if you have £100 million worth in property, you are not a good person in my book. You're not a good person. Rishi Sunak was the first Tory leadership candidate to release a slick launch video last week. It emphasised his grandmother's humble origins, painting him as the latest in a long line of industrious strivers. But a clip from a 2007 BBC documentary that resurfaced this weekend tells a very different story. I have friends who are aristocrats, I have friends who are upper class, I have friends who are, you know, working class, but I'm not working class, but I mix and match. And then I go to see kids from an inner city state school and tell them, you know, to apply to Oxford and talk to them about people like me. And then I shock them at the end of chatting to them for half an hour and tell them I was at Winchester and, you know, my best friends is from Eton or whatever, you know, and, and then they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, how deluded imagine. do you think you have to be to think you can go to a boarding school whose yearly fees are more than the average salary and be middle class? Well, I just love the reveal at the end of the. You know, these <laughs> like I, I've had these. You know, these people sort of come to 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 my college talk about Oxford and Cambridge or whatever, and it, it, you imagine it was Sunak. So Sunak said, "Look, anyone can do this. Look, I'm a." I'm a I'm an Asian guy from middle class background. I got into Oxford and Cambridge. Then he's saying we had all this banter. Then at the end, I shock him. Oh, actually, by the way, I went to Winchester. You got no chance. <laughs> it's like that. It's like the opposite of what you're supposed to do at one of those access events. You probably saw it first as well. The, the clip, you know, that was shared on Twitter originally ended at oh, not working class, obviously. Therefore, maybe the context gets better when you extend the clip, but it only gets worse. We keep getting told that Labour's lost the traditional working class vote, it's a party of graduates, but the last three Tory prime ministers were privately educated. I mean, two of them went to Eton and the next one might have gone to Winchester and they call that diversity. I mean, why does the left get tarred with middle class when the top of the Conservative Party is dominated by people who are, by anyone's standards, incredibly privileged? Well, I mean, if you want the serious answer is... Well, I mean, it's a sham that's sort of invented by people who went to Winchester and people who have £100 million worth in property to hide the fact that they are protecting their class interests. I mean, that's, that's, that's what's going on here. And then the way they do it is by saying class is actually culture and class is about judging, judging people. There is something to, you know, obviously I think it's completely bullshit. There is something to, to learn from that. I think probably, you know, the left would do better to sound less judgmental because people don't like to be judged. You want to take people with you, not look down on them. The Conservatives... I think one of their strengths is they look at people and say, 
you know, all your concerns, all your worries, they're actually legit. You're a legit person. Uh, everyone can believe and do what they want. By the way, that also includes me having 100 million pounds worth in property and having all these investments, or at least my family having all these investments in, in tax havens. I think the Tories get to put forward themselves as having more of a live and let live attitude, even though they're protecting their wealth and from the rest of society. It's actually, the reality is the opposite of live and let live. But culturally and sort of morally, I think they say we, we aren't taking the high ground in the same way that the left are. It's about that difference between class as a cultural thing and class as an economic thing. And they are putting the focus on the genuine divide that probably does exist between sort of graduates and non-graduates and ignoring the divide that exists between people who have a hundred million pounds worth of property and people who have net assets, which are below zero because they're renting and they're in debt. I mean, the thing that really cracked me out was that accent. It was like he had a wedge full of five pound notes just rammed in his mouth. Anyway, next story. Trade Secretary Penny Morden has joined the gang of hopefuls launching their bids to be Tory leader and therefore Prime Minister. She announced her candidacy to the world with this video. We're starting the process of electing a new leader of the Conservative Party. The party will have a new leader. The nation will have a new Prime Minister. We must choose this person with solemnity and wisdom. We must choose not just for ourselves, but for all of us. We must think of those that came before and of the generations to come. The world they inherit will be decided by the character of the person you select. They will color every aspect of our institutions. They will determine our ambition as a nation. In this contest, there will be a focus on policy and what we will do. But there must be focus on who we are. It will affect both our reputation, our government, and that of our country. These are the values of our country. Freedom, fairness, courage, compassion. Conservatives do not have a monopoly on good people and good ideas. We are the most successful party in our nation's history because we more often reflect its values. Our greatest heroes have been the living embodiment of them. Our greatest impact is when we have inspired others to them. But first, my friends, let's get breakfast done. Thank you. We feel these values keenly. They are why we serve, why we vote, why we volunteer, why we give others opportunity, why we want our country to be a force for good in the world. These values matter more now than at any time in our history. They must be upheld by our leaders. When it comes to leadership, we must change our approach. We need a return to confidence. We need a return to clear policies. We need more than just a plan. We need teamwork to deliver it. So choose your leader not because you agree with everything they say. Choose them because you trust their motives. Our leadership has to change. It needs to become a little less 
about the leader and a lot more about the ship. I'm Penny Mordant and I'm ready to serve as the next leader of the Conservative Party. So there we have the stirring instrumental version of patriotic banger I Vow to Thee My Country overlaid with a bizarre montage. There was the obligatory Winston Churchill statue, Captain Tom with his family of grifters just out of shot and also cricket. There's a nod to the NHS, British industry, the courts and teachers, but no indication that any of the workers in each of these sectors are balloting for strikes this summer. Also featuring Boris Johnson, which is risky given all that's happened. You'd think that a potential new leader would want to put a good mile between herself and the hottest mess in recent political history. Then there's Britain from space, Blenheim Palace, a neon teapot. And I guess we'll call this particular cinematic experiment psychedelic nationalism. I don't know. We'll see if it catches on. You may have noticed a few well-known figures thrown in there as well. First, there was double gold medal winning Paralympian sprinter Johnny Peacock, shown here receiving a hug from Oscar Pistorius, who later shot and killed his girlfriend, Reva Steenkamp. There was immediate outcry over a leadership candidate who likes to burnish her feminist credentials, casually featuring a convicted woman killer in her campaign video. And shortly after the video launched, Johnny Peacock made it very clear he wanted nothing to do with her or her party. I officially request to be removed from this video, anything but blue, please. And a few hours later, Mordaunt released a new version of the video from which both Peacock and Pistorius had been removed. Also visible in the original video was Professor Sarah Gilbert of Oxford University. And you may remember she was head of the team that developed the world's first COVID vaccine. In the second version, she's gone. You may remember seeing this chap as well. He's not famous, but he does appear to be a serving policeman, and political campaign rules are very, very clear. According to the National Police Chiefs Council, any campaign material involving existing police images is not allowed because it might suggest that the police support the candidate. The policeman was also removed from the later video. Finally, this is murdered Labour MP Joe Cox whose image appears beneath the voiceover of the words, the Conservatives don't have a monopoly on good people and good ideas. You'll remember that Cox was shot and stabbed in the run-up to the Brexit referendum by a far-right extremist who yelled Britain first during the attack. It's beyond offensive that Morden, a hardline Brexiteer, would exploit her image like this for a political campaign. But Cox remains a part of the new video. Michael, the video was cringe, it was incoherent, it sparked complaints as soon as it launched. If you were running for leader of the Tory party, is that how you'd launch your campaign? It would be how I would launch my campaign if I'd been kidnapped or had monkeypox <laughs> or some other kind of disease that made my face look a bit weird because where is Penny Morden? Uh, has anyone asked this question? I only had this thought looking through that video. Correct me if I'm wrong. Has she appeared since she launched her campaign? Her whole thing was, it has to be less about the leader and more about the ship. So I think that this was meant to be nod to humbleness and a lack of ego. But if it's a personality contest and you're not imposing your personality, you know, how are you going to fare against someone like Liz Truss, who's got a photo shoot for every occasion? I just think we need to know physically where is Penny Morden? 
I, I feel like I think maybe she did a really badly timed holiday because she's launched her campaign. I don't think we've heard any interviews from her. Do correct me if I'm, I'm wrong in the comments. Her launch video was completely bizarre. Like it was something from Little Britain. When I first saw that, I had to double check that the Petty Morden Twitter account wasn't a fake one, you know, where someone gets that blue tick and then they change their name to Penny Morden before they get suspended and put out a ridiculous video. Because that was bizarre. And the Joe Cox bit as well. I know, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. It's, it's kind of offensive because of the context in which he was killed, etc. But I also just find it a bit weird. If the point she's trying to make is, look, I'm a tolerant person. There are people I disagree with who I, I also think are, are virtuous, who, you know, I don't think we have a monopoly on good ideas. Well, name someone who you disagree with, but respect who isn't dead. I mean, it, it, it just seems a bit weird that the only person she can find who she has some respect for but disagrees with has, well, tragically in that case, passed away, was murdered. Uh, is there not an alive Labour MP who you think might have the odd good idea? Because you're not going to be very good at working, you know, in, in, in terms of sort of cross-party issues if you only respect people who died. It's just, it all seems incredibly bizarre to me. And yeah, I'll go back to my original point. Where is Penny Morden? I think she's locked in the same room as you, so I can keep her away from number 10 and you away from the Tisky Sour hot seat. <laughs> so we've had some breaking news. The rules for the Tory leadership competition have been announced. They are nominations for the leadership will open and close tomorrow. The first ballot of MPs will be held on Wednesday and a second ballot of MPs will be held on Thursday. 20 supporters will be needed for each candidate in order to appear on the ballot. On the first ballot, 30 votes from Tory MPs to proceed to the second ballot. The winner will then be announced on the 5th of September. Currently, only three candidates have 20 backers, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt and Tom Tugendhat. So are you saying that poor old Raman Chishti has no chance. <sighs> the game is the game and it is harsh out there. Well, I guess that is the end of the show. Thank you so much, Michael, for letting me steal your job. Thank you so much for giving me um, this, this break. I appreciate it, especially on this heat wave day. I wasn't jealous of you in the studio, I have to say. Yeah, and Fox doesn't even let me have ice cream in the studio, so I truly am suffering. If you want to change that, pay for our ice cream budget, go to navaramedia.com slash support and please become one of our generous monthly donors. Maybe I'll be allowed a Cornetto once in a while. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support. <laughs>